0: Hello and welcome to The Executive Appeal, a show that convenes the world's most powerful and successful leaders to share mentoring and career advancement advice to help you successfully transition into senior level executive positions. I'm your host, Alex Trumbull, award winning speaker, author and leadership expert with over a decade of experience coaching and advising some of our nation's most senior level government leaders. So if you're ready to reach your goals, let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull, and today, today is a good day. See, today's guest is Dr. Alan Constantian. Alan served as the Chief Information Officer for Account Management at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, which is the second largest federal agency only after the Department of Defense. That's huge. So how are you doing today, Alan? I'm great, Alex. How are you? Again, I am fantastic now that you and I are on the line. Um, you know, I, I try to just give a quick introduction of who you are. Do you want to just give maybe a few seconds or a few minutes on, you know, who you are, what you do, or what you did, um, just for a little context?
1: Um, I'm Alan Constantian. I was born that way. I still am. Uh, what I uh, did... Um, was I spent 21 years as an Air Force Medical Service Corps officer. I retired as a a full colonel. Uh, Then I went uh, to the centers in Medicare and Medicaid services. I spent seven years there, um, first as a GS-15 and then the last five years as an SES. And then I uh, moved to VA because it just killed me to live within walking distance of the Metro and yet have to drive uh, two hours a day to go to work. Smart man. And because because it was an opportunity to use my strengths, uh, I thought even better than I was at CMS at VA. And so I spent the, uh, I would say final uh, eight years of my um, professional career Uh, as a executive at the Department of Veterans Affairs all in the Office of Information and Technology and I'm back because of COVID uh, for a reprieve uh, no a replay uh, but in a, a much more subdued role because you know Alex regardless of what position you have you're still the same person and there are other things that I enjoy doing outside of work and as as time draws to a close on the earth, you know, I wanted to enjoy, I wanted to enjoy some more of those things. But uh, it's, it's much easier when you're not in a, a top leadership position to have, I think, a, work, a good work-life balance. So here I am.
0: Well, we appreciate you being here. And, and I think the country as a whole appreciates you coming out of retirement again to, to continue serving the country. Um, especially our veterans. So, you know, when I first mentioned this interview series to you, I told you that this, we're focused on influence and teaching people how to influence those around them, especially at this executive level. And you and me like, well, yeah, I need to be there. This is what we do in my division. This is what we do. We influence others. Um, why are you so interested in the, in the idea of influence? And wh- why, what made you so good at it?
1: So um, I think, uh, and uh, Alex and I are working together on on a leadership development program. That's what we've been spending the past two months uh, working on. And one of the things that we do is a standout assessment. And um, my two strengths in that were uh, being a connector, uh, and being a stimulator. So basically, my sort of through this instrument, my focal areas are to connect with other people in order to, um, uh, the stimulator role is to understand and, and, and empathize with what other people are feeling. And the connector role is to make connections happen all toward an end of um, getting things done that help the other person and the organization. And you know, that's public, part of public service, the other person uh, writ large. So I was really excited about this because in order to be effective um, at, at, it, at my job in account management, I had to connect with other people for most of my service with the Veterans Health Administration And then I would have to stimulate, I would understand where they're coming from and then stimulate action toward an end that accomplished things. And, you know, sometimes the results could be very, very powerful. And it wasn't because I had a staff of hundreds. It's because I made the connections and had the political savvy to know what are the opportunities to, um, in many cases, turn some critical – Uh, opinion maker in VHA from a skeptic of OIT to a supporter of OIT and then working on those relationships very intentionally and deliberately to, to turn those folks into sort of net positive agents for us and systematically sort of one by one targeting particular places with focus Um, I think I was successful and the success is not my success, but the success was successes in suicide prevention, in telehealth, um, in uh, care, the caregiver programs that we're doing in a variety of uh, community care programs, a variety of things that were really important to the agencies. So I wasn't looking to build my own success. I was looking to use my strengths to leverage them and and those connections and and building up um, uh, relationship capital with others to accomplish things that were important for
0: veterans. Well, I think you already already touched on a lot of what I wanted to get into. I'm gonna keep keep diving in. Um, If you can think of an instance of someone who you said was maybe a skeptic um, or critical um, of a particular idea or program, and then you help to mo- push them over to being a net positive. How did you go about doing that? I mean, you don't got to say anyone's name, but you know, how do you go about making the person who's a critic um, an ally and a proponent?
1: Well, I think the uh, the thing you have to do first is listen to the person, um, and 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 sort of empathize with where, where are they coming from? How are they seeing the world? How are they seeing your, or the organization that you're representing? And then also to understand what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Now, if it's something that they're trying to accomplish, which is like for their own self aggrandizement, I'd sort of like say, oh, that's interesting. I'd walk away. But if it was something that genuinely was gonna benefit veterans. So for example, in a su- the suicide prevention program, or in telehealth, and I don't know which one to pick, but maybe, I'll, maybe if there's time, we can do both. But with telehealth, back in 2016, I was um, you know, interacting with different executives at in, in VA, and the, really, ever since I got to VA under uh, Secretary Shinseki, telehealth as a concept and a vision was something everybody loved. This was the future, we wanted to do this. And when I became the account manager for health, so that was the SES position um, that was focused on VHA. My final position was over all of the account managers, but I was one of the account managers in 2016. You know, I'd heard this for a couple of years since I started at VA in 2012. So for several years, I'd heard a lot of rhetoric on telehealth. And then, uh, so, so I approached uh, the director of telehealth. I don't think he'd want to he'd care if it was a secret or not. Dr. Kevin Galpin. And he said, well, you know, we're, we're having a gathering uh, here in DC um, in June. Um, and I said, well, that's great. Maybe we could come to the last day and do some sort of strategic planning on terms of, you know, wh- wh- where you are and where you want to get to. And so we, we did that. We did some studying and we came to find out that with all the rhetoric, there was absolutely no money put toward development and expansion of telehealth that there were a couple of small scale projects, mm-hmm. but nothing else. So it was a vision without any kind of resources. And so this didn't happen immediately. But over time, and both through working the process, but also through working relationships and exposing the risks, um, uh, both he and I, in different ways, me more on the OIT side, he more on the VHA side, said, This is an issue that we've got to address. We have way underinvested. There's so much potential here. The rhetoric was all over the place and uh, so we basically in 2018 and 2019 started a program to expand telehealth capacity across the board at all 1000 plus VA points of presence so it was at at least at a satisfactory capacity and when I came back I want to tell you Alex when I came back uh, one of my first emails was back to Kevin and I said (laughs) Gee, Kevin, I'm sure glad that we uh, we got together and collaborated. I don't know how we would have overcome this uh, telehealth work mm-hmm. without having, you know, put the time in and invested. And now it's coming to fruition because everybody was using telehealth. I mean, people were still going to the medical centers, but telehealth was widely used. Um, and he said, you should, he, he completely agreed to me. He said, I don't I don't know what we would have done without the partnership that got the results that we had. So we were ready in 2020 when COVID hit. So that's, uh, that's one example. I have another good example if there's time, but that's one example of collaboration that was very sort of effective and had a, a, a very important outcome because I do not know where we would have been in 2020 had that meeting in 2016 not taken place. And so, and the incremental work, working both relationships and the process Mm -hmm. to get the attention of, of leaders who then were able to fund the expansion of telehealth. It was part of our joint business plan in 2019 and systematically uh, we had the money. Things got turned from red to green uh, with respect to telehealth availability.
0: Well, a few, a few things. One, I love that story and I think it does highlight the world that we're in now, as well as the world, I think it's how how it's always been, but how we're moving forward. We can't wait until we need something to start working on it. You can't wait till you're thirsty to start digging the well. Um, And what you did was you prepared the VA, um, what, two plus years early so they could deal with this challenge. And uh, because you you spent the time, the energy and effort. So I want to make sure I'm I'm highlighting that. Well, and to your point, though, I think, how did you decide, I think a lot of people believe that these are my toys, I'm going to play over here. Those are your toys, you play over there. I'm busy, I have my own resources. How, to partner, to collaborate with him, it took time, it took effort, it took resources. How did you know this is what uh, a venture worth investing your time and resources I'm sure. You had
1: other well, you know, well, I, I've been involved in healthcare in various aspects for you know my entire professional career, and so I, you know in the military I was not always an IT person. I was in healthcare operations, you know, working medical supply and resource management and different, different uh, patient administration activities. So after that amount of time, you kind of have a sense of especially if you're in the technology area, you kind of have a sense of this is going to be a game changer. Um, I need to get behind this. And it was sort of clearly signaled by leadership that at least, um, at least from a policy perspective, leadership was all behind this, but it took, you know, getting into the books and seeing, you know, he was expressing frustration. And I was looking at the IT books and I said, well, the process has never gotten you any money. Um, for any, here's, the, here's the amount of money you have in 2017, 18, 19 for development, and they were all goose eggs. Uh, and so we changed that because we, we, we highlighted, I think, the, uh, the impact of that lack of investment uh, to leadership that we, th- okay, the process happened, but there were things in the process that were not supporting leadership's vision. Uh, other, other interests were intervening and there's always more demand for IT services or, or really any kind of resource than there is supply. It's a, it is a scarcity kind of game. But in this case, there was such a case uh, Uh, of efficiency that was possible through a more robust telehealth uh, structure. You know, being able to backfill a provider that gives their two weeks notice in Grand Fork, not Grand Forks in Fargo uh, with a provider who's living the, living a great, maybe retired part-time life out of a telehealth center in Charleston. That person, that, that physician never in a million years could be persuaded to move to Fargo, North Dakota when they're age 65, still willing to practice medicine, um, see some patients, but not in Grand Forks or not in Fargo. It's cold there in the winter. They wanna spend their time in Charleston, South Carolina or uh, I don't know, San Antonio, Texas. And being able to use through telehealth appropriately to have patients seen who would not, either wouldn't be seen at all uh, or would be sent out to the community. Is just seemed like it was a no brainer to move forward on. Uh, that the, the value prep proposition was just too great to not you know put some effort behind it.
0: But, you know, you and I were talking earlier again as we were working on this other training together. Um, the importance of fear, and I don't think we we didn't we didn't, we didn't frame it like that we were giving that we were talking about educating people how to give briefings. We have to let people know what the challenge is, right? If, if they there's no challenge, there's no reason for me to listen to you um, because there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like, I mean, you called out earlier that you're good at political savvy. This sounds like that was a great move that you guys did. And, you know, very, it seemed like you very articulately, very, methodically laid out the challenge hey if we don't do something something bad is going to happen to us yes is is that make yeah
1: oh yes and you have to pick your venues carefully too so uh kevin uh, dr galpin kevin had put together a great sort of chart showing what the current state of telehealth was to the national leadership Council for the vha and I, as the account manager for health, I was invited to go to those meetings uh, regularly. I was the only non-VHA person in the room. It was a great privilege because you saw, you, you saw the VHA organization um, having a dialogue in terms of what their priorities were internally and not, not speaking to an IT audience, but speaking amongst themselves. So that, was, that provided such great insight, and I, I credit both Dr. Shulkin and Dr. Stone for, for opening that venue up to us or to me. Um, so he had this great presentation and I said, Kevin, you've got to, we've got to show this. We, at that point we had um, monthly meetings with the CIO and the Undersecretary for Health and I said, mm-hmm you got to show, we, we got to show this at a joint meeting because the visual of having all of these places that were not able to sufficiently support telehealth sessions was just compelling. Um, so that was just one, of one opportunity to show visually what the challenge was, all those red marks, and then to periodically, after it, we had found ways to invest in the improvements, to periodically come back, you know, every six months or so, and say, "Here was the last time we showed you this slide. This is what it looked like. Six months later, this is what it looks like now. This is what with the current investment. This is what we hope it will look like six months from now." And we put it in a joint business plan that was signed by both the CIO and Undersecretary of Health that we are going to get to. You know, seventy-four percent of these places are going to be have at least adequate. Um, telehealth coverage by the end of fiscal year 2019 we hit that target um, we hit that target and you know then I left because then I was uh, so, so I kind of wrapped up my services the. I, I was kind of dual headed <laughs> as the account manager for health and the account manager for the entire office for most of 2019, which is maybe why I retired because I just it was just it's, two big jobs <laughs> like that was too much. I didn't need a break. Um, so anyway, so, 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 so visually displaying the, the challenge and, and the results of uh, their investment was, was very powerful. And having a graphic or quant- being able to quantify things or show things graphically is very powerful when you're trying to persuade people and keep them on the course.
0: Well, and then I, and I would add, it's also how intentional you were about making it not an OIT thing. It wasn't you approaching this Is hey, this is us. These are two yes. very important fa- um, factors of this organization, and we think this is really um, essential. Um, so that, that very intentional, again, not making it about you, but uh, I, I, I love how you did that. You um, know, you talk about your strengths and you talked about communication, um, being able to show the data, show what's important using different types of uh, the, uh, avenues, right? You know, there's people who need the data. So there's then Some people need the pictures, the visualizes. Some people need um, to understand the the qualitative um, impact that's going to happen or, co- uh, yeah, qualitative impact is going to happen. Um, I, I, I think we as leaders, and you'll know, correct me, you know, especially people who become successful, they become successful because they're really good at something. And they tend to think, see the world through that, through that angle of, of what they're really good. Like me, I'm my thing is political savvy. My thing is communication, influence. And so I, I generally believe that I can convince most people to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look at every problem like that, whereas other people look at the same exact situation and say, no, 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 this has nothing to do with influence. This has to do with X, Y, and Z instead. Um, so how do you, and I assume that you've thought about this, but um, how do you also account for the different types of um of styles when you're trying to influence those people you know you may have a a particular way of doing things or looking at things how do you make sure that you're not only paying attention to a problem the way that you see it well i think you have to know what your strengths
1: are and what what they're not and so um you know so there's two ways of approaching that if it's a really important problem but you know you're not the person that that can solve this you bring in the right people who can solve it or in the resource constrained world that we live in which is like governed by the the sun and the hours on the clock um you know you just you you pick things so most people have a why, especially the, the, the higher you are in leadership, the, the more choices you ha- have um, with how you allocate your time and your emphasis. And You can't allocate your time and emphasis to every worthy problem. So your choices are either try to get somebody else who can address that problem, whose who's, um, capabilities are well suited to addressing that problem. That's one approach. And another approach, and they're not exclusive approaches, is to tackle those problems that you know that you are you have the gifts to be able to solve. Um, and so, with the with the the suicide prevention work and with uh, with the telehealth work, those were things that. I knew that I could make a difference with the limited time, discretionary time that I had. Because we all have to do performance reports, evaluations, Mm -hmm, Our mm -hmm. schedules are crowded with meetings. So when it comes down to how much discretionary time you have to focus on particular things and go after them, comes out to be not that much time that you have. And I think it gets less the higher you go. You have more leverage, but you have even less time. I like that and so you have to pick you have to choose your battles in, in terms of battles that you think you can win with the time that you have available so it's a resource allocation question i I,
0: I love that i haven't heard anyone say that as of yet, but I love it that the, the, the more senior you become, the more you have leverage the less time you have um, and so you be very intentional with the re, where you allocate your most powerful most important resource which is your time
1: right um, the less discretionary time you have we all have the same amount of time yeah. but yeah. It, uh, you know if, if your time from you know uh, which is where it was getting for me was from eight till five was you know if i had a half an hour with not a meeting scheduled in there and, and most of those were not meetings that i scheduled uh, the, the ones that i scheduled were meetings that i thought you had to have as a supervisor which is you know if somebody's going to be working for you you ought to be able to you know find 30 minutes every couple of weeks to be able to check in with them one-on-one to give them some back feedback give them you know unfettered access to you and so, 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 yes, I imposed those meetings on myself, but those were necessary, but the, most of the meetings were meetings that were placed on my schedule because of my position, so the amount of discretionary time I had was very limited, and often evenings and weekends
0: so you know, I talked to other um, senior level leaders, and some of them want to have a a pet project, something that 's important to them, but they mm-hmm. feel like they don 't have the discretionary time every all their time is filled by the responsibilities the mandatory responsibilities of that position um i mean do you have any advice for other senior leaders who want to who have an idea like you were able to work on right that's that you that you knew this is going to be huge in the next few years but they feel like they don't have enough time like how would you what what advice would you have for senior leaders who feel like they're in that situation Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been ensuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or replacement for Fagley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA group term life insurance and see how much you could save by visiting W A E. PA.org today. If you're a manager in the federal government, do you have Feds protection professional liability insurance? Because if you don't, you need to get it. Having a Feds policy means that you will be protected against any professional capacity lawsuit administrative action, or criminal investigation arising from actions taken in the scope of your employment. This insurance is a must-have for federal managers and starts at just $209 a year. Plus, your agency will reimburse you for half of this cost. To learn more, visit www.fedsprotection.com or call 866-955-3337 today.
1: Um, I would say often there, is, uh, there are things that you, you can delegate safely to others. And part of you know, your responsibilities of leadership is to, um, to get things and sort of step away and sort of train the, the, uh, the other people to pick up. And um, I think so, so just as much as you need to look at what are the opportunities and how do I want to spend my discretionary time, You also have to be very aggressive about I want to give other people an opportunity to do things and feel like they own something, that this is my thing to own. Um, Because, you know, everybody wants to own something. They just don't want to do little piecework. And, you know, people want to, um, you know, create the... uh, I don't know. People want to use a uh, seam uh, a tailor ring example. People want to create the whole dress or they want to for a cook would want to cook the whole cake. They don't just want to like beat the eggs. They they, they want to mm-hmm. you know, they want to be the owner of some something that they can be proud of. And so, you know, one way of doing that is you know, sort of uh, you have to do what you have to do when you first come into a job, but Once you've mastered that, and you've understood it, one of the opportunities you get to make some discretionary time is to then take members of your staff who have promise and are the right fit for that particular challenge and bring them into it, not just, okay, here's, this is yours now. See ya. But gradually bring them in, establish the relationships that you have with, with the the people, and then slowly fade out. And there was one person at GS 14 who took the entire access issue, which was so big, scheduling and access. And it consumed my time and you know, one of my deputy's times, like a lot. But you know, over a couple of years, we'd kind of had it under control and we took a new employee and said, this is gonna be yours. And over the period of about three or four months, they, were, they got involved. We introduced them to folks. They were at the meetings. They ran the meetings. We were still there, and then we gradually drifted away, and then nobody noticed, which was good because, mm-hmm. you know, he was able to handle it, and he felt so empowered by having that as this is his work, uh, but it also gave me time then to focus on things that needed my uh, help to push along, which, you know, for a while we're scheduling, but then scheduling was on track. And then I, I handed that off to another capable GS-14 uh, who, who went in places where I couldn't go because of his technical expertise mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and solved some very great, excellent, specific problems that made a difference to people in, for example, in a veteran's home in North Dakota. I never would have been able to solve that problem. With his technical expertise and that area of focus, he was able to solve that. And by that time, the funding was, was rolling in and I had just had to take care of making sure that the sponsorship kept coming uh, for you know, enhancing the capability across the medical centers. But that, so, so I think there's an initial effort that's required that is a heavy lift, but if you're always looking at opportunities to develop your people by giving them something of substance that you've kind of, you know, gotten to a, a, a steady state point And and pass that along. You can create time, discretionary time for yourself. It's still gonna. There's always going to be things that crowd out the the time. But but you have to be just as much as you want to go after certain things. You have to be equally aggressive in terms of letting things go, where it's time for you to let things go, and and let others sort of take it in places that you can't take it because maybe your skills are or maybe new issues have arisen where your strengths are not the best strengths to use for that area. So like when it came to solving a technical issue for a telehealth situation, my skills were not capable of that. My skills were, this is a big problem. We don't have any money. Let's find the venues to bring it in front of people and get the money. That was my skill. And once we had the money, and there were some specific technical issues to be resolved. It was good that I was not there. And uh, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, a, a subordinate in my organization, took over because he was able to solve those problems that I would not have been able to solve
0: and get the satisfaction of having accomplished it. How do you, One, I have to just key in on that word you used. You said aggressively. I love that word. Because it's not it's not like, "Oh well, I'll find time sometime when it happens. Um, I will, yeah, I'll look at my you know schedule every once in a while as my workload, and no, you're saying, be very intentional about making sure you're moving things off of your plate that shouldn't be on your plate, and you're empowering others to to, overcome, to take on those those um, those tasks and allowing them, like you said, to make it theirs, you know, don't, don't just, you know, crack the egg, but you're actually making this cake. I, I love, again, I love the word that you use aggressive because it seems so intentional and to oh, make yeah. sure what happens.
1: Right. I mean, and from, from both perspectives, one, it, it it's a win-win because you get time to apply to other emerging challenges that are coming up that, that, that really you in, in your leadership capacity, you have to handle the, that some of the fastballs that come in it, it's it would be wrong to to like duck the fastball and have it hit one of your subordinates in the head you know you 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 mean that they're paying you to, to catch the, the the fastballs um but but when things are sort of uh, in a sort of controlled state and it's it, it, the direction is you know clear but still not completely clear there's still challenges it's your obligation to uh, to to hand that off to somebody else because not only it saves you time so you can handle those, the fastballs, the new fastballs that are coming, but it also gives them opportunities to handle important things, not just make work projects, but important things, the organization that have some success, but they still have not, they're not concluded and they have opportunities to build upon the, you know, whatever foundation you may have, Late and solve problems in different ways. And, and, you know, that's part of the satisfaction of being a, a leader is that by doing this, then you develop the next generation of leaders who are able to handle the fastballs um, as opposed to, well, all I do is, is uh, I don't know, I, I, I beat the eggs. That's all I know how to do is beat the eggs. I don't know how to make a cake. Well, okay. So, this cake is half-baked. It's got all the ingredients in it. Now bake the cake.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you now literally just took me to where I wanted to go next, is developing your that pipeline, those leaders beneath you. Um, you know, again, what, the two things that you talked about you were really good at is, is those relationships and the political savvy. How did you go about teaching your... Again, like you know, you get your 14s and 15s. On Do you how, how did you go about teaching them how to be more politically savvy?
1: Well, I think you know in the the one-on-one meetings that I, I scheduled, and you know those are important meetings to me for for two reasons. One, because sometimes you know it's hard to get the attention of you know a boss that's busy in a senior role. So you want to make yourself available, but also you know an email is not good. I didn't consider an email the best means of communicating sort of this, these sort of soft skills of, okay, so uh, so to, to go over um, why we were in the future going to take a particular action or um, what had happened in the past recently um, and why it was done that way. So they can see, you know, like, this was effective, but it was effective because of, you know, sort of these these things fell into place Uh, to sort of connect the dots in terms of, it just didn't happen, this is why it happened. And to take the time to sort of, to to describe what the process was to, to make those things happen often, and often it involved sort of political, sort of savvy and then taking people Uh, with me to meetings, like if there was going to be a meeting with somebody where we're going to try to overcome um, a particular issue, um, you know, sometimes I would take people who, you know, they knew the details, and they were going to do the briefing, and I was just going to be there as the senior person, but sometimes it was, look, I just want you to watch, I just want you to observe, and, and get to know what, kinds of questions this critical person has. Cause this was maybe somebody who was, um, you know, one of the people who we're trying to, I mean, it sounds like a spy effort, you know, we're trying to, to, uh, to, to bring them over or something, you know, but, but no, we're trying, and, and to, in a sense, we were targeting people to, to get them to be um, net promoters of IT through our actions, not, not because we, you know, not, not because we, we could blackmail them or, <laughs> you know, I've got this on you. <laughs> you better say good things about OIT. It was by demonstrating what good partners OIT could be for them um, and, and sort of winning them over, you know, positively. So um, so sometimes I would just bring people in. And then afterwards, I, I, you know, we would sort of on the way either there or in the back. It doesn't have to be formal. It can be just sort of uh, as opportunities where I say, we did this because I had to do this because of this, 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 and these reasons. And to sh- sort of share some of that sort of learned sk- over years skills.
0: No, you, you know what? I, I feel like you and my – my first executive mentor would like get along so well. Um, when I was just beginning my, com- my, my, uh, my career in the government, I was a GS, I think a seven at that point, And I oversaw, well, initially I was a GS-4, but um, when I really start cranking, I was GS-7 overseeing executive leadership development. Made no sense, right? Why are they gonna let some GS-4 do it? But uh, GS-4, GS-7, that's the role I had. And so what he did was, he intentionally brought me to every SES meeting he could bring me to. Mm, um, let me just, and then he would bring me back to the office and we would sit down and have that informal conversation about right. yes, what was decided, but how did we get there? Oh, this right. person doesn't like this person. This person didn't support this. Yes. That's why they're support. Like, and those are those things that we need to make sure we're teaching our, uh, those upcoming leaders. But I feel like maybe people don't feel like it's enough, there's enough time to do that, but it's so essential.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely essential.
0: I I actually, I teach a number of those skills in my political savvy course, but what what I want to key in on really quickly is you've talked a lot about the relationship building, relationship building throughout this, our time together. And, you know, as we start getting ready to wrap up, I want to maybe post what, how should people be focused on building relationships. You know, you talked about being strategic. What Can you talk a little more about that?
1: Well, I think one needs to be deliberate in terms of um, forming relationships or professional relationships that I'm talking about. Maybe personal relationships too, but from a um, professional perspective, you know, your goal is to help support the mission of your organization. That's, that's what you're getting paid to do. Um, and so you wanna be as effective as possible in doing that role. And so um, we're always very we're careful about paying attention and inventorying what we need with respect to many things. Like we don't have any cheese in the refrigerator we're short on cheese, we need to have cheese, or there's no cereal and the, so we, we fill out what our sort of critical missing elements are every week or two, and then we go to the grocery store and supply those for ourselves. Well, what I'm arguing is that in terms of um, being politically savvy with respect to relationships, is that we also need to inventory what we have in terms of Uh, Relationships, both the quality of the relationships we have, but also the redundancy and the gaps of our relationships, and seek deliberately and thoughtfully to not worry so much about the redundancies, Uh, that's fine, but maybe not invest in all of the redundancies with the same amount of vigor, pick out one or two in that area that all have the same information um, but to deliberately go and seek out places where there are gaps because it's really uh, the value you bring to your organization is when you're the only one who has the box of cereal everybody else may have chicken in their refrigerator and we can all say oh well i'll share my chicken with you great yeah i already have chicken and, and i could get it from uh, jeanette or or Dewan or somebody else I get the chicken from what i don't have is rice, and um, none of you have rice either, so i'm going to go out and look for rice so similarly, in our relationships, if we are immersed in our own little bubble where the only information we get is this echo chamber of other things that that same bubble knows the The value added I have from a relationship network um, is not much if those are all my relationships. The value you get is when you can form relationships, not just go to a conference and randomly meet people, although that in itself has value, but to form relationships and ongoing relationships with people with whom other folks with whom you normally mingle do not have those similar relationships because then you bring additional insights and perspectives, you know, like my, uh, like my friends and colleagues in Social Security Administration when I was at CMS. Um, and these can be drawn from any number of sources. You know, maybe you speak French and you do a meetup group in you know, talking French and you happen to meet somebody who is kind of in your same uh, area you know same area of work, so based on that common interest, you develop a, a you know a friendship or relationship where you are able to pass information back and forth um, that's of interest and a value to both of you professionally so that that's kind of what I was alluding to
0: it, it made me feel like you know as you were sharing that story it, it I think it underscores the point you were saying before about. How much of an asset you were because you had a relationship um, that communicated information back and forth that no one else had. Um, mm-hmm. You had once shared an example of you know, being on LinkedIn.com where you know you go to you see someone on LinkedIn.com and there's you know 50, 15, 30, 40 people connected with that person in your organization. Well, you know, is there value added in making that connection as well, or finding someone? Um, Who's not connected to the organization. Maybe you need to have that relationship. It actually right. makes me think of a time um, kind with of my, uh, someone, generally speaking, when I work with uh, senior leaders, I do my best to, if they, ha- if they don't like someone, I'm very intentional at building a relationship with them and or their office, just to make sure that if these two can't talk at this level, I can still get information to my supervisors, my team, Mm-hmm. Um, to make sure they're successful. And obviously you'd be really careful because you don't want to be seen as a spy or something. But right. again, like you said, I had access to information that other people didn't have, which made me more valuable. Um, right. So You're I, I, creating
1: I, a unique connection and a new, unique link in the network, which in your absence would, would not be there. And so the information is richer.
0: Yeah, I, I love I, I love that you brought that, that concept up. I think so many people... I think for people, it's really easy to, like you said um, before, to hang out, to associate with people who are like you. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so easy, kind of just drawn into it instead of saying, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know there's, I have a lot of people in this in this realm, great. But where, where if I built a relationship, would it actually add value to the organization, to myself, um, that many people don't have. So again, I become more of an asset. I I just love that concept that you brought up.
1: And I think it's win-win. It's the the person, because you are probably also uniquely connected. You're you're the only one in the other person's network that has these connections. So you're bringing your entire network with a thin string to somebody else's network, which would not exist before otherwise so yeah I think it's very valuable and I think that people are not in general are not as um, intentional I don't know deliberate about curating their networks um, as they maybe should I mean it's pleasant to talk to people all of whom have your same ideas maybe but you don't really Learn or grow from those kind of things. So, if and you know, work, work. It's it's great when work can be fun, and and and, and enjoyable. But as I said often to my staff, is like there's a continuum between there's this kind of this two dimensional array on um, terms of um, an organization being either ineffective or effective, so that's on one, that's on one dimension, and the other one as being um, enjoyable or not enjoyable. So, in a working situation, hanging out and talking exclusively to people who are thinking the same thoughts as you are may be enjoyable, but it's not productive. If I want to do that, I'll go to the beach and share a beach house with my friends. But that's not work. Nobody's paying me to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, what I want to do is is do something enjoyable and making connections with people who have different perspectives is, you know, if you have any level of intellectual curiosity, is interesting. You may not agree with them, but it's really interesting. And you can find these connections in lots of random ways. I mean, there there are lots of opportunities um, to do that in, in, you know, going to striking up conversations. You have to be a little bit outgoing. You can't just, you know, only talk to people that you already know. You have to sort of reach out and and say hello and, and, and force yourself to do that if you're an introvert, which I am. I tend to be but ultimately a lot of good can come out of it so you know that's what i've tried to do and that's uh, we're talking about political being politically savvy and i've tried to do that over the course of my career is to talk to people who are not like me maybe in the air force i might talk to a, a pilot or even a nurse or you know not not some health ser- bunch of health service administrators um you know what's it like from their perspective, how are they seeing things? And it's a, usually a win-win.
0: Well, Alan, I appreciate your time so much today. You provided so much great um, substantive advice for everyone to consider and hopefully implement into their lives as they move forward. Um, Alan, I'm, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you the last uh, last word in regards to, is there any last thoughts or ideas you wanna get off your chest that you wanna share? with? Um, someone who is a, a fourteen, fifteen, wanting to be an executive, what what would you share with them if you had any last words?
1: Well, I think um, you can do lots of things uh, as an executive. you you know there's a lot of perks, but there's also a lots of demands as an executive. and have, keep being able to keep a work-life balance is important. One sole objective in life should not be to, um, to reach the top rung of an organization if that's going to destroy other non-professional objectives. There's a lot of life to be enjoyed that has nothing to do with work, and, um, and one has to think deliberately and carefully about what is that next job going to demand from me, and do I want to give that? I think that's, uh, that's what I would offer.
0: Well, again, I'm actually fairly sure that anyone who's watching this interview right now is probably a go-getter, and they probably needed to hear exactly what you shared right now um thank you so much for joining us here today hey everyone if you enjoyed this 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 talk this interview please wherever you are click the like button click the subscribe button um share this content with your friends and family so they have the opportunity to also learn this valuable information that was shared today if you um again i'm not gonna put alan out there but i think he's probably on social media um you can find him if, you, if, if if he wants to be found, if he wants to be found, I'll put his contact information in the description. Um, there's, there's, uh, yeah, my LinkedIn
1: is, there's not that many Constantians, so. <laughs> well,
0: I, as I like to end every session I, I do, um, please, everyone, uh, especially right now during COVID, stay safe, but also stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Executive Appeal with Alex Trumbull. I invite you to follow The Executive Appeal wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me, your host, Alex Trumble, across all socials or via email for exclusive webinars, courses, and his speaking engagements on continued topics of executive leadership. So until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.